0: Welcome to episode 213 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Bryn Jackson.
1: And I'm Brian Levin. Today we caught up with Will Pang. He is a designer, currently co-founding a new company called Northstar, which is a little bit secret, but we talked a little bit about what's going on. Uh, In a past life, he worked at Red Swan Ventures as a venture capitalist. Before that, uh, he was a self-taught designer. On the East Coast, he's an East Coast boy. And we got the chance to meet him here in San Francisco, working out of the Combine office. We finally got him in the studio to talk about his background, what he's working on, moving from design to VC, back to starting a company, and all the challenges in there. It was a lot of fun. But before we get into the episode, if you haven't heard, just a quick heads up. We moved our community. We used to be on Slack. We had a
0: few thousand people in there. And we moved them over to a platform that Brian and I and our friend Max
1: built ourselves. It's called... For communities like this. And it's called Spectrum. It's a new community platform, and we have a community for people like you who listen to podcasts like this on the Spec Network. Uh, Spectrum is a place for all communities. You can join a bunch of them, get all the updates in one feed, so it's easy to keep up with all the things you care about.
0: There are communities for tools like Figma and Framer and Sketch, and there's React and tons of code communities you can join whatever you want there's tons of stuff for people like you
1: and if you don't find a community that feels quite right you can make your own it's totally free you just go to spectrum.chat you can poke around sign up Uh, and if you want to talk about podcasts like this one definitely join the SpecFM community and you don't even need another stupid slack account to manage yay hey one less thing so if you have previously been in our slack team it's now moved Again, that's at spectrum.chat slash spec.fm. Hopefully, we see you in there. Say hi. And with that, let's get into episode
0: 213 with Will Pang. My name is
2: Will. Uh huh. I'm excited to be here. <laughs> <laughs> We're excited to have you. My day job is that I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm a co-founder of a new startup called Northstar. Uh-huh. It's a company in the personal finance space. Mm. We're not public yet, but uh, you can check out our landing page. At northstarmoney.com. Nice. Put in your email. Put in your email. Nice. That's pretty much all you can do on the website right now.
1: It's compelling. Very compelling value <laughs> proposition. Uh huh. All you need is a landing page to have a startup. I mean, it's, that's Done. most products anyway, right? Yeah. So you're inventing a new currency, Northstar Money. <laughs> North, North, where's
0: Northcoin? When can I get in on the ICO? It's coming. It's coming.
2: <laughs> Wait, it'll, actually? It'll drop randomly <laughs> and you won't, know. you won't know, but we'll raise a, $100 a hundred million. $1 billion. Dollars. Yeah. yeah.
1: Because that's what you need. Exactly. Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about Northstar, even though it's not public? Yeah, so
2: I'm not going to go into details yet of what it actually does. But Mm -hmm. um, it was driven by, from what I've seen, a lot of friends and peers and family um, across age groups, across backgrounds. And I think a great summary of this was this article in The Atlantic that came out about a year ago. And I think think the headline was The Secret Shame of Middle-Class Americans. And it followed a few people who outwardly seem really stable financially, um, make good income, go out for drinks and dinner with their friends, go on vacations, but were actually living on a shoestring shoestring budget. And so the crazy statistic that is now very um, well known in these circles is that the average American, over 50% of Americans can't afford $500 in an emergency without turning to friends and family for help or uh, selling something. And it's just like a mind-blowing statistic that... That um, is mind-blowing. What? So you could be going out with your friends and your friends like next to you who doesn't seem like they're in financial stress um, probably actually is. Dropping $15 15 on a cocktail. Right. Those avocado toasts. Yeah, dude. That'll get you. Uh, (laughs) And so the reason behind all of this is pretty deeply rooted in behavioral psychology. Um, And um, put simply, people don't really like to think about their money. Mm -hmm. Um, It's easy easy to put off long-term issues in favor of short-term pleasure. Uh-huh. And it's easy to just a lot of people leave their money in their checking account, and for example. And when you have this big bucket of money just che- sitting in your checking account, there's no boundary of what you should spend. There's actually like a pretty interesting classic behavioral psychology study. Um, and two two people who should you should be aware of in this space that have done interesting studies, uh, Richard Thaler and uh Daniel Kahneman. Daniel Kahneman wrote the book Thinking Fast and Slow, yeah, um, which I highly recommend. Yeah, that's um, a good one. It's long. It's very long. Yeah, it's uh it's uh There's a funny story there where I actually haven't read the book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I highly recommend highly you all recommend read it. it. I've have, heard great. Things. I have
0: it sitting under a stack of cookbooks in my like <laughs> entertainment center. <laughs> um, Guys, what the fuck? So I'm the only one that's read it. No, teach so, me about so, it. It's so sitting, oh, it's one step under Sapiens. It's uh, just they're yeah, sitting yeah. on top of that each other. one too.
2: Um. Daniel Kahneman was my professor in college, which is why I love oh, this okay. topic. <laughs> um, and so he was actually writing his book. Our textbook was his draft of his book. Shit. You're, you're an economist. What? Economist. That's awesome.
1: Yeah. So, um, so you, okay. So you you are allowed to speak on the subject. Got it.
2: Well, partly. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a very famous study in related to um, money – And I think Richard Thaler coined the term mental counting. The scenario is that this woman's going to a show and she has bought a ticket and it costs $150. And when she shows up at the theater, she finds out that she's lost the ticket. And so this study asked 10 people, what do you think that this woman's going to do? Do you think she's going to buy another ticket? And nine out of 10 people in this scenario said that if she lost a ticket that she had already bought, then she would probably just not go. And then the people who ran the study asked the same question, except if she lost $150 of cash that she had decided that she was going to go and buy the ticket with, then 9 out of 10 people or higher number of people actually said the opposite, that she would just buy another ticket. Hmm. Because with the $150 of cash, it was coming out of a general bucket of Mm -hmm. money that was going to go towards towards things. Mm -hmm. And so she was more, this woman would be more uh, relaxed with that money. Um, And so less disciplined with that money. And so one of the most effective ways to be responsible with your money is actually assign certain uh, rules or assign, assign assign certain jobs for your money. So, yeah. this bucket is just for food, or this bucket is for mm-hmm. uh, transportation. Um, the problem is that even though this solution sounds simple in theory, in practice, it's very tedious to do. Like, no one does this. Very few people do this, actually. Yeah. Um, so, that's actually the basis of,
0: like, behavioral psychology is the basis of a lot of what we're building. Um, I think Mint did that for a long time. Like, you could bucket... Yeah. Like money for different things it would tell you how like close to the budgets you were budgets per category yeah. right um the, the thing with
2: mint that was really exciting when it first came out was that you can see all your accounts in one place mm-hmm. and it's like in the in the first generation of internet products yeah um but it feels like it feels like a lot of work mm-hmm. and yeah it's if, a lot of manual labor to right. like set up and manage right and not only to set up on a continual basis, you have to keep using it. And you, yep. as soon as you fall off, you, it's hard to get back on. Yeah, and never so gotten back, yeah. this leads to a different, a separate uh, psychological framework that I'm really interested in, which is uh, one came up by this guy called B.J. Fogg. Um, he's a Stanford researcher, and he talks about building tiny habits. And he has this framework, this equation, B equals MAT, where behavior equals motivation, times ability, times trigger. And you need all three of those to create behavior change. And so the goal is to, for example, create what he calls a tiny habit, which snowballs into a a long-lasting habit. And so the example he gives is, if you want to floss your teeth every night or every day, what you do is you tell yourself, I'm going to floss one tooth. It's like so stupidly small that you're, of course, I'm going to do it. Why wouldn't I floss one tooth? And so as soon as you floss one tooth, you're like, I'll just might as well just keep going. This might as well finish. And so that's one example of a tiny habit. But if you want to use the equation for something more sophisticated, I like to think of it as you're creating a system that you can rely on when you're lazy, when your motivation is low. And so when you have high motivation, what you should be doing is actually trying to set up something set up a system so that you can rely on it when you have low motivation. So um
0: it's like a savings of motivation kind of <laughs> kind like of w- when you're getting a good paycheck you put some aside so when you're getting a bad paycheck you're fine. <laughs> right.
2: Um that that's that's one that's one way to apply that to to personal finance. Um <laughs> and so so I like to think of it as like I'm you're, I'm admitting that like we're all lazy at some point and you're not relying on Mm-mm. like constant high motivation. I'm never lazy, dude. You're never lazy. Oh,
0: I wasn't trying to apply it to personal finance. I was trying to use personal finance as a metaphor to explain
1: the motivation. Uh, thing.
2: <laughs> so Brian's never lazy.
1: Never not Have once. Have you met Brian? I've never slacked off in my life. Really? Yeah. He's
0: preternaturally focused and motivated all the time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you sleep?
1: no dude no cut that out you actually waste the time
0: (laughs) he goes to bed very early so it seems like he's always way ahead of you
1: yeah 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 uh so you have first of all did you ever envision that you would be studying all this behavioral psychology in order to start a startup you know it's it's funny and like i like this is uh super cliche
2: um but like so the short answer is no yeah um Actually, when I was taking that class, I was thinking, what a waste of time, because the way that he ran the class was kind of annoying. Like, the first thing he said in the first day of class was, "Uh, y'all are just my guinea pigs. I'm writing a book. I need somebody to take a look at it. His
0: last name sounds like Con Man.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So, like, we were, I I mean, maybe I took it too personally, but I wasn't that uh, excited to take the class, but... This is maybe a like an example of the flaws of traditional education is that this is one of those classes that I thought was going to be completely useless, but actually was very, like one of the most important foundational mm-hmm. uh, f- ways to think about things that I took from college. Yeah. Whereas some other things that I thought would be really useful, like stochastic calculus were ah, yes. totally <laughs> useless. Yeah. Um. So... The answer is no. I didn't know that it would be applicable. Um, but I think that's sort of been true of my entire career up until now. Like, it's just been sort of following uh, whatever has felt the most um, natural. Yeah. Um, rather than trying to fit into a
1: sort mm-hmm. of conformed path. Yeah. You mentioned one of the, the solutions to. This problem of having a bucket of general spending money is to assign jobs to it. Mm -hmm. Uh, Are there any other things that you've learned through what you're working on now, without like talking about your specific solution or whatever you're building? Because I guess I don't actually fully know what you're building, but like any other things you've learned that are useful to help people with personal finance, because that fifty percent number of people who can't couldn't afford a five hundred dollar emergency spend is crazy yeah I think um, and scary right
2: what I would say is like if you're somebody trying to figure out your personal finance the um, the answers the solutions are actually pretty easy to understand they're just really tedious to put into action and so if you're looking for information I think good places to start are the reddit personal finance subreddit and that community is just so vibrant. There are, I think, 8 million subscribers. Yeah. And if you go to the wiki section, some person has created this huge flowchart of the order in which you should do things. So if you have high interest debt, pay that off. If you don't have an emergency fund, do that before buying some Bitcoin. Yeah. And so if you follow that, that's actually, uh, you'll be pretty well off. And I think people are su- will be surprised by how well they can do. Um, so I think the pieces that are important for a successful personal finance product are understanding the best practices. So this flowchart, for example. The second is you have to personalize it to your personal situation. So you can't just transfer the amount of money that the, your friend who makes double you do. Yeah. Um, and the third is it needs to be automated. So back to BJ Fogg's concept of Tiny habits um, and B equals MAT. If you don't set up a system for when you have low motivation, you're going to fall off the wagon. And so, how do you? So, like, we've talked to a ton of people about their existing systems, and I have like a folder on my computer of people's Excel spreadsheets and like people's notes and calendar reminders. And the most effective approaches have been have involved automation. Um, So, how do you take those best practices, apply it to your personal income and spending, and just automate uh, the transfers to those goals? Yeah. So um, I think that's that's the foundation of what I would do if I were looking to
1: figure out my personal finances. Automate all the things. Yeah. Hmm. So I read the personal finance subreddit for a while. I guess I'm still subscribed. Um. But at a certain point, I had this really bad disconnect with all the advice in there is so bent towards the frugal side. Like, here's mm-hmm. how to maximize the amount of money that you have in your bank account. Yeah, And it doesn't, I, I had a hard time finding people that talked about what are good ways to spend it or like, how do you balance life fulfillment with the size of your bank account? Yeah, Because, you know, a big number on your computer screen doesn't make you happier. Yeah, for sure. I think it makes me happier. <laughs> <laughs> it makes Bryn happier. I'll clarify. <laughs> I think this is the classic problem of personal finances. How do you and, balance long term? Yeah, but that's the first happiness. thing you said, right? Is like yeah. everyone, it's a nice excuse to think more short term, like, ah, you know, I got to spend it to be yeah. happy. Yeah, it's complicated.
0: How did you get into that area? Was it just that, like these studies coming out that made you interested, or was this something that was kind of a long term? fascination or
2: yeah so i think there are two parts of that one is career path and the second is how we ended up looking to solve this problem as well Mm -hmm. as taking this approach and the to answer the second question first um i think one of the strongest indicators that something needs to exist is when people are already doing it Despite really crappy user experience. Mm-hmm. And personal finance celebrate is one example. And like this folder of examples of what people do manually is another example. So in terms of what we should build, I think that was a great leading indicator. As opposed to I think the greatest challenge as a as a founder is like and as a designer is how do you balance what users are telling you versus what you think should exist. And you Mm -hmm. have people arguing for both sides. You have people saying, oh, users can never tell you what you should build. But on the other hand, you have people who are incredibly data driven. And so how do you balance They'll want a faster horse. (laughs) They want a faster horse. (laughs) Yeah. Five thousand horses in front of a chariot.
0: Yeah. That sounds really slow.
2: It's 5,000 horsepower. (laughs) (laughs)
1: But... It sounds really slow. I I don't think that's how that works. (laughs) Sounds cool, though. One horse speed. That would be an impressive sight to see. (laughs) Um, Okay. 5,000 horsepower. Excellent. So that was the motivation to do this, is you just saw all these people already exhibiting a behavior that relied yeah. on shitty solutions. Yeah. And, so you can and from, better.
2: from the problem, um, so that's like of from the solution side. From the problem side, um, I, I think I sort of hinted at it earlier that uh, f- talking to friends yeah. and peers and family, like people who were going through emergency situations with medical bills, from people who were just like would ask questions about personal finance and show the motivation, but just not do anything about it. So B equals M A T, high motivation. They've been triggered to do something about it, but they have zero ability to solve for it. Mm -hmm. So I I think it's just nothing that's been shown by data necessarily, but when you're an early-stage startup, you sort of... It's hard
0: to get good data.
2: Right. You you don't even know the right questions to Mm -hmm. ask. So you're sort of following what you feel
1: should exist in the world. Mm -hmm. When can we... Like, what's your timetable on building this? How long have you been working on it and when do you think you're going to be ready to ship something uh s- soon we we've been
2: working on it um we've been s- we started building it in january yeah and we believe that the s- service needs to be really th- the bar for quality is much higher for a personal finance yeah. product Anything than financial. for s- other types yeah um we can't lose people's money uh-huh. mm-hmm. there's regulation involved uh, on top of that, we need to build a compelling user experience. And it's interesting because you would think that the only bugs that affect you when you build a personal finance product from user perception standpoint are ones that are related to losing money or incorrect account balances. But actually stupid, simple things like, I don't know, like visually something looks off, like that might actually create more uncertainty around your product. And look, whoa, like, they can't even handle their like forgot password page. Mm-hmm. Like, w- do I trust these people with my money? Mm-hmm. So, there's the, the bar is higher. So, the way that we're scaling up the company is more methodical. And uh, rather than doing a wide release and trying to go to, for press to write about us and launch a product hunt and things, some things like that, we're directly reaching out to people who we feel like, uh, we can have the most impact with and making sure that their experience is amazing, being very hands on so we can learn as much as possible. Yeah, And then once we've figured out what people want, in what ways are we going to display what they want, then we can focus on scaling. And so we're, we're sort of in the um, understand customer mode right now and building a lot of prototypes mode right now. And then we're going to scale. And once we've decided that we have the core of a product that's really interesting, and we can support a large influx of people, then we
1: then we'll probably go public. Got it. Has so you've been working on this for uh, almost nine months at this point, or almost eight months? Uh, anything been surprising to you that you didn't expect when you started working in a personal finance space? Yeah, I think it's not only the personal finance space, but um,
2: We didn't cover my background, but... um, Oh, we'll get there. I Before this was a venture capitalist. Yeah. Um, I managed a seed fund called Red Swan. Um, So doing seed investments. And before that, I was a designer working at a few startups. And so there have been a lot of things that have... I think I underestimated how... Many unglamorous things there were about starting a company uh, that you need to make sure that you cover. So all of them, all of them. <laughs> um, I think um, I underestimated how uh, how many details go into starting a product and building that foundation. Uh, so I think it gave me a lot of empathy that I didn't have when I wasn't when I was a VC. <laughs> oh no. Um, <laughs> So this is a note to all VCs who are maybe listening to this podcast is is harder than it looks. Yeah. Um That's for sure. In terms of personal finance, I think we always knew that personal finance is complex. People's money is messy. People's mo and, and, and uh there's not a one size fits all solution. But I think there are ways that we continue to be surprised by how messy people's money is. And so that's actually guided a lot of our product insights. Yeah. Um, what hasn't surprised us? People always say you should launch sooner, mm-hmm. and that was true. Um, uh huh. I don't think-
0: followed that to a T. We were like, <laughs> we're so sick of long deadlines, so we launched it in like three weeks, and like it was a shit show at first, and nice. it was the worst.
2: I think you're the first founders I've met who uh, didn't say they
1: launched too late. No, we were just like, fuck it.
0: <laughs> we're like, we're just going to launch the first version we can. It yeah. was, whew. You learned at, so much. It's every like startup
1: a, I've been at has been like
0: a year and a half before yeah. launch, and it just killed me. Or, not. or yeah. not. It's like
2: so tough for company morale, too. Mm-hmm. Like, you're a year and a half in, you
1: launched yet? Like, it's, it's it just like, it, it wears on mm-hmm. you. Um, I mean, there's dangers both ways. Like, there's probably not one right answer, and there's certainly different types of startups that need different, I guess, like incubation periods to be ready. Yeah. And mm-hmm. for us, I think you like, like, don't have to deal with finances. Yeah, yeah, we don't have to deal with finance. Like if we have a bug, maybe we lose your message, but we're not losing your dollar, right. which is like oh, multiple orders of magnitude more important. right? Yeah, I, I don't know. And I can see the trade-offs like we, if you launched Too early with something that's too bad, maybe you end up with like a leaky bucket problem. Like, yeah, you'll get people to come check it out, but then it's so bad they never return, right? Or you wait so long that
0: you have to rebuild trust from zero, which is like way harder than like having them come in with some expectation that they can trust you. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah, I I think,
0: um,
2: I I still agree, I still think that like everybody should try to launch as soon as possible, obviously within certain constraints, Mm -hmm. like it needs to work. Um, the But I think there's like, I don't know if you guys felt the same way when, when you, when we launched, it felt like there was this, it's like when you're at the optometrist and they do like one or two and they like switch the lens and it felt like the lens through which we saw how to build our product and like what things we should prioritize was flipped Hmm. and things that we thought were important were suddenly not Mm -hmm. and vice versa. And that's like invaluable. Oh, we're like spinning those things. <laughs> <You're> just, <yeah. laughs> and, that's what it sounds like. And so like, I think the concern that you, I think you maybe hinted at was like, oh, maybe somebody might stop using the product or, I I think that's a non-issue. Um, number one, like there are a lot of people in the world. But number two, I think like the way that at least we approach product development is through this sort of like, um, you guys might have heard of this concept of like the law of diffusion of innovation uh, uh no you Mate. probably have, ah, yeah that one you probably have seen the graph more than heard the name which is like that bell curve of types of users that you build yeah. for and you should yep. go for first and the first people who use it are those like friends and family who will like run through mud and do a tough mudder for yeah. you yeah um, just because they care about you yeah and those people will probably not hopefully not churn Um, and so like you can afford to make mistakes with them. They have investment beyond the product. Right. Right. And so, um, I think maybe this is something that, um, you have to have, um, been through launches before to really believe because mm-hmm. I think there's so much startup advice out there and design advice out there that you read it and it's like they've become like mantras. You'll like, go oh, ship early, ship fast. You haven't been, if you're not embarrassed about what you're shipping, mm-hmm. then it's too late. Yeah. Like you read those things, you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I feel good about myself now, but you don't actually do anything about it. Mm-hmm. And it's like, not, it's like, or, or you go like watch a, a talk and they have some great advice. But sometimes I'll re watch talks that I thought were really good and like, I'll, notice how I react differently to things that they say because now I have different experience.
1: Now that you're in the weeds. right?
0: I mean, a lot of those things are platitudes, right? Like, you don't have to demonstrate it when you're talking about it. It's do as I say, not as I do. And that's way easier. Right.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I I think Bryn is definitely like anti- Platitude. Brian quotes. sends
0: me shit all the time. I'm like, no, no, I do not
1: send you shit all the <laughs> all time. All the time.
0: He tweets it all the time. I do not. I pieces left and right. What literally do not. What is this shit? Is it
2: like uh, motivational posters? No, no, no. Uh, I uh huh. think
0: that <laughs> he, he mails me motivational posters. <laughs> it's like from is your secret news, admirer. Man. It's like Brian. I know it's you, <laughs> Brian. I saw this thing and it, it's it's a cat and it
1: says, "Hang in there." And like. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no not motivational posters um I like reading I was definitely like, exaggerating but indie startup or something it's like this guy that interviews founders okay and they're just interviews and I think some of the founders are pretty good at calling out like you know this is my experience yeah uh, this only applies to my specific situation but here's how I did things yeah uh, I enjoy reading that and whether or not you apply anything that you learned there it's um, yeah. I mean I don't know I guess you could see it as a waste of time or like non-relevant but i i do find it interesting to read other people's experiences and then yeah it's, it's interesting maybe there's like, something to learn like I don't know.
2: you have to question why pe- why people are writing these things or why people are up there saying these things that yeah in what's most, their motivation in many yeah. cases it's personal marketing yeah mm-hmm. like what i want to hear from the people who aren't compelled to put in the effort to s- spend their weekend Putting themselves out there, writing a
0: medium post, like writing yeah. a medium
2: post, like, and so I think that's an inherent bias of, of uh, the communication platforms that we have.
0: As soon as there's a generalization too,
2: like, then it's like, well, this yeah. advice. Some count. like really snazzy headline that like designers should X.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, All founders are X. Exactly. <laughs> it makes me hate those words.
1: Like, ugh. designers. I'm not that kind of designer. No,
0: I don't want to be that.
1: <laughs> okay, let's say you ignore platitudes and talks and all this bullshit where do you find you get the most valuable advice from today Mm. or do you even seek out advice
2: yeah i i think um i agree with you that the best advice is the advice that um from people who are less prescriptive and who they don't say like you gotta do this like this worked for me therefore it'll work for you Mm -hmm. it's for people who like really listen to you first Um, Like somebody who like jumps in and gives you a solution immediately before I even tell them the situation, like I'm skeptical of those, that type of Mm -hmm. advice. I think the reason why I moved from New York to San Francisco was actually the reason why I was reluctant to. Um, It was, there was just, it's all encompassed in here. Like there, there's so many people here who have done what you are trying to do that, and they're so willing to help.
0: When you reach out, it, that it kind of like builds an energy. Like I don't want to yeah. get too like, oh my god, San Francisco is amazing. Yeah. Um. But like when I got out here, I was like, holy shit, everyone's trying to do the same thing I am. Like, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And and it's and and uh, for
2: as much a, for, San Francisco is a complicated place, mm-hmm. and th- there are many things that I still hate about it. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that's great, actually, the reason so like my co-founder Matt and I, we we uh, Matt Madison, we, Matt Matt at Matt Matt everywhere. Is that Matt Matt? Really? Yeah. Interesting. We, uh, I was joking I should change my last name to Williamson. Mm-hmm. Will Williamson. Mm-hmm. Will Will. Okay. Will Will. Um, we were friends before and uh, like, we would hang out socially. But as, when I moved out here, we started building side projects together and hacking things together. And like that's just one example of it. And now we're like business partners. And when we were starting a company, there are all these like, stupid small things that I sort of alluded to earlier, like we've got to find a notary. Mm-hmm. For some reason, we didn't know about Notarize.com, which is amazing. We have to get good at SAS. Get good at SAS. Bryn over there on the other side of the, <laughs> the office say, "Hey, styled I components." Heard... <laughs> <laughs> why? Why? Why is there a, a nail polish on our on our desks? Nest next? that media <laughs> query. Nest, nest... <laughs> um, where did these uh, style components uh, example code end up on our whiteboard? Mm. Where did this come from? Huh? Weird. Huh. Here's how you would do that. <laughs> Um and and so I mean like I mean that's a great example like actually like we work out of a great space um shout out to the Combine guys Mm -hmm. um Adam Michaela and uh, Salil Cuervo and uh, Josh Mm Pocket that's how Bryn and Brian and I know each other we sit next to each other we sit next to each other um and it's it's awesome I mean these guys are CSS experts (laughs) style components experts well not Brian no let me. We <laughs> and it's awesome just to to like so quickly learn. I mean, another example is like I'm a very terrible coder, and uh Aren't we all, though? Matt and yeah, that's how you get to be a CSS, <laughs> <there>. <laughs> CSS expert. But Matt and Tony, my coworkers, we uh they they let me touch the code, and they're like, okay, this is a scope problem, and go learn how to do it. And I think that the ability to immerse yourself in Think and follow people who know what, what exactly what they're doing, I think is a, an incredible strength. So this applies not only for like learning SaaS and style components, but also for starting a company. So like I, I have a, a small group of people who I reach out to who are like the same stage as company as I am, mm-hmm. but also people who are like one stage ahead of me. Yep. And so like I'll reach out to them and ask them questions about like, hey, like when you went through this, like, how did you think through it? And so I gather a lot of uh, feedback mm-hmm. from them, and then I make my own decision. Yeah, it might not be perfect information, but it's like a forecast for like what's coming, right? And these are all—I can't think of a That's single person handy. of this group of people who uh, write
0: blog posts and medium posts. So Soup and Slay have been really helpful with that stuff too. Yeah, for sure, writing—they're super writing medium posts. No, for, medium providing posts. <laughs> context for things that we just don't know about. Yeah, yeah. So like, seeking that advice has been like. It almost all has to come one on one because people yeah. won't tell you about the things that are like caveats. Yeah. If, if you're writing a medium post, you're not hedging everything. Right. Um, or you're writing really bad medium posts. Like, that's just not what medium posts are. Right. Is there something that you feel comfortable talking about? Some advice that they imparted on you that was particularly insightful that you wouldn't see elsewhere? Individual examples would be hard to come by, but uh, it's been a lot of things
1: where um, I think. You you know, for me, is what you are saying, like someone that will try to understand what you're doing before they provide solutions. Mm-hmm. So they would sit there yeah, and just I mean, listen to us, talk course, about right? why we're building the thing we're building yeah. before. And, and I don't think they've been prescriptive about anything. But and like, then they would ask the hardest questions. Th- holy yeah, then shit. they would ask really hard <laughs> questions based on, on like, what we told them. Second guess everything.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think the other thing is, as a founder, one of the toughest things is like everything is uncertain and your mortality is staring at you straight in the face. Like there is a day when you're going to run out of money. Mm-hmm. And so you kind of have to have like selective memory and like kind of a little bit of delusion. Mm-hmm. It's like you go home from work. Yeah, I got a, I got a stable job for another year. Uh-huh. And, <laughs> um, and, 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 similarly like this applies to everything else like we haven't figured out our business model yet we haven't tested it we have a hypothesis of how it's Mm going to work but it's just part of something that we'll figure out later because other things are more important this is one of the things that um i learned when i was a vc actually was that you would think that the job of a vc is to figure out all the risks that are involved with a company and oh, there's uh, market risk because Apple might build this, or mm-hmm. there's business model risk. We're not sure if people will pay for this. But especially at the seed stage or the early stage, when these things are all uncertain, what's actually more important is the ability to decide what is, which of these risks are most important, and which of these risks are ones that you're willing to take take a leap of faith on, and what is that differentiator to that thing that's going to make all these risks not matter. And it, because if you tried to get stuck on, like, analyzing all the risks, you would end up in analysis paralysis, like you, no one would start a company, mm-hmm. no one would make an investment. So it's like that core belief that something needs to exist, that drives founders to be delusional enough to start a company, and investors to be half as delusional enough, or maybe one as yeah. delusional enough because their portfolio is thirty companies yeah. to invest in a founder. Mm-hmm. Um, that conviction is actually much more difficult than uh, than pointing out all the things that could go wrong with something. Mm-hmm. So bringing it back, like I found that the um, the mentors or the people I've asked for advice who have been most helpful have been able to like parse through that and say, no, 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 like this thing you're worrying about over here, that's not important focus on this other thing and if it's not in it it feels like you have sudden clarity and like i just got to solve that one thing Mm -hmm. and it feels like a really productive meeting i feel like those have been the best advice meetings that i've had Mm -hmm. um and what's what's been great about working in building a company in bay area coming external
0: product advice has been really helpful for us as well like you get so in your head about like all the different directions you could Mm -hmm. go and then someone's like well, I used it, and this thing was broken, and I can't use it without that. Like, yeah, it, you get like just sudden like sanity checks, mm-hmm. yeah. and that's super helpful. Yeah,
2: yeah, I'll, I'll uh, shout out to my girlfriend Tabitha. She works at uh, Khan Academy, and she's an incredible designer, more more incredible than I am as a designer. Um, and we, in our most recent launch, um, she signed up, and she created a Google Doc just called like my running comments on your product (laughs) and it was two it was a table with two columns that's awesome and on the left side she just took screenshots of the pages and on the right she just left like a running commentary Mm -hmm. and it was awesome because the feedback that she gives is the feedback that she would have got wanted um Mm -hmm. having like she's a designer and like knows exactly the type of feedback that's valuable so to your point about product clarity There were so many things that she wrote on that document that we were just like, of course, like that makes so much sense. But, and some of these things weren't even like high on our priority list of on our product roadmap. And so I think like this clarity exists across every discipline within a company, within product, within marketing, um, within fundraising, whatever it might be. And like seeking those um, people out is something that I think is almost like a requirement for um starting a company and is a reminder of myself that i should try to find more of those people
1: i found it challenging though Uh, we just did a big user research session and a lot of issues came up and i have a hard time balancing like when to roadmap those issues Mm. uh or basically trying to make the call that yeah that sucks but we're willing to leave it like that for a few months yeah um do you have a framework for figuring out, like, okay, so mm. Tabitha the leaves, all these comments, yeah, like, yeah, all these are valid, but we're gonna ignore you, yeah. And
2: I think, I think, like, there's um, the internal prioritization framework, but there's also the way that you get back to your users and make them feel like they've they're heard, yeah. Um, and like, I think the way that we handle it is for internal prioritization is that we. No pun intended, but like you always have that North Star of like nice. how, how, you see what I did there? Um, of what the next step, what the next question you want to answer is. And it, it, this sounds theoretical without an actual example. Um, I mean,
0: it's, that's like why sailors use the North Star, like, right? It, otherwise, they would just drift. Right. Like, so that's something that definitely happens in, in companies. Mm-hmm. Right. So like you
2: kind of have like two, two, phases two types of questions that you're trying to ask one is like how do we define what that north star is based on customer feedback but you ultimately have the final say of like okay this is what's going to be um one way to think about it is like fits our original vision of why this needs to exist and in that phase of defining what's important i think that's when you need to be open to Outside customer feedback, um, because you don't want to ignore where like some interesting interaction has emerged. Like some of the greatest interactions on Twitter have been from the users, yeah. like the retweet, the hashtags, reply, hashtags. Yeah. But then once you've established that, then you you have to, when you get the feedback from customers, then you have like a true um, source of truth that you can actually return to and say, okay, like this is not core to our immediate. Sprint, let's put that into like the icebox. Yeah. And we'll revisit the next time. And so I think communicating that to users, communicating that to employees who have projects that are their babies is incredibly important to that in such an early stage company or in any product. Any product is in like constant evolution. And so, like, no idea is like a firm no. Yeah. It's never like, we're not going to build this. Yeah. It's like, this is what we've all agreed upon is our current goal. We're all driving towards trying to answer this question here. And if we have a major issue with, let's say it's like a, let's say, let's just continue to use Twitter as an example. Like, let's say one of the, like, some of these customer feedback is around um, hashtags. And they're like, well, like, it's really hard to parse through like a live event that's happening. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Twitter could say maybe in the early days that we actually don't care about hashtags yet because we care more about onboarding, for example. We're trying to grow really quickly. We need more users. And so maybe the justification was that we should focus on this first and then we'll focus on hashtags later. So I think it's like
1: always a balancing act. I feel like it's that times 10 when there's three people. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be like even more ruthless. Like, there's 10 things and they're all sound fucking amazing to do this month like yeah. we all, but we it's know gonna all take one report. person
0: two weeks to do this one it's yeah, gonna yeah. take the other yeah. two
1: people three
0: weeks to do the other one like
1: right so you're a designer by background yeah and now you're a founder with vc experience yeah uh what would you say to designers who are interested in like a similar path like I talk to so many people and you say, what do you want to do eventually? I think I want to start my own thing. Mm, Yeah. How do you prepare better to be in a position where you are now as a founder? You know, you've raised money and you have a team. Yeah, so I think the,
2: this is similar to the difference between a junior designer and a senior designer as well, um, as you get higher up within a company, um, which is I think the more senior you get, the more time you spend thinking about and deciding what to build and why you should build something, and the less time you spend like actually executing on it, and that's not to say that like you're doing less actual like time, in, you're, you're spending less time in Sketch, but it's just that maybe your skills in Sketch are better, so you're spending less time in it, but you maybe do a lot of writing. Before just and talking to people and talking to customers before saying, okay, this is, we actually have a pretty good idea of what people want. And so when you design something, it's like very well educated based on customers' needs. Versus I feel like, at least when I was a, just getting started out in design it was like, okay, like this thing looks bad. Let mm-hmm. me just reskin it. Let me do an unsolicited mm-hmm. redesign. I mean,
0: that, that was the problem most people try to solve rather than like learning the problem like inside and out and then right. trying to solve the actual problem instead of just
1: like it's yeah. kind of ugly, right? Facebook doesn't look good, so I'm going to do an unsolicited redesign right. to make it look good. It's
0: all without- rectangles now. There's no border radii, <laughs> and it's no gradient. Without considering that it's like the most profitable
2: digital right. product ever, so that's a really good point. Which is that there are so many factors that go into a complex product that I think I think unsolicited redesign is a sort of like we were joking about it, but is actually a great like analogy for like what it takes to be like, a high-level designer as well as, like, a founder is, like, you have so many trade-offs that you have to make when there are other factors involved. Like, you could look at Facebook, you could look at Twitter, and, like, whether you agree with their decisions of how they've designed their product or not, like, that, like you have to appreciate all the work that went into ending up at that product. And I think if I were a junior designer and trying to get to that phase, I think... That's the skill that I would try to exercise as much as possible. Learning how to make trade offs? Um, being less prescriptive about a solution and more listening to. Like, inquisitive. Inquisitive. And so I think, like, that would be the biggest blind spot I would have as a junior designer is like the reason why I feel like I'm doing an unsolicited redesign is because I think that that's the most important thing the visual design. Mm-hmm. But I would rather than assume that I'm right from the get go, I would go through each thing and actually ask like, why? Like, why does this look like this? And try to understand why it looks like this. And that could that could involve talking to customers, that could involve talking to people who actually built it. I think it's, it's natural for somebody who's trying to prove themselves to show up with a strong opinion. But I think the people I respect the most who are like awesome designers or people who actually like listen first, Rather than saying this is the solution, this goes back to my point about like it being really hard to um, believe in something and being it being really easy to be a critic. Like it's so easy to be a critic. Like anybody can write a medium post saying something sucks, and um, being a good critic is even harder. Being a good critic is really hard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, being a good critic is about being really nuanced and understanding the other side, other side's opinion. Like criticism is at its highest form is not about like us versus them, but rather like let's work together in a conversation with the other person to move both our understandings to a, a higher level rather than um, just like I agree to disagree. Yeah. like Or complaining about it. Right. <laughs> that's not criticism. Right. So that's sort of like philosophical, but um, from a practical standpoint, I think if you apply that to starting a company, you realize that, like you said, maybe you have three people when you first started out, and every single hour, every single minute that you spend doing something is a minute you can't do doing spend doing something else. I'm very jealous of my friends who work at large companies. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you have how many designers? You worked on what? Yeah, like
0: Wait. you have more than three. That sounds miserable. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to work there. <laughs>
2: um, so I think. You, when you're forced into this crucible, you come to appreciate the trade offs that go into something. And, like, I myself have been on the receiving end of many trade offs where it's like, oh, we need to have this feature, but sorry, we can't build it. And the product we launch is super embarrassing. It's not what represents our vision.
0: We actually had a good conversation with Supa about this. Um, Supa is Adam Michaela. Adam Michaela, yeah. Context. I, I said Supa earlier too, and I'm like, some people don't know who that yeah. is. And one of, the things that he said that really stuck with us
2: was like as a startup it's so tough to pitch a really big vision while building something that's really small and you don't feel like it's representative of, mm-hmm. the, of that vision so so much of our, like early days relies on like storytelling yep. and like being able to tell that vision and like to you as a founder it's so clear what this thing should look like and you've thought about it so deeply and then you're trying to pitch it, but then people are like, okay, this is not, this is really boring. Um, and so there's a tendency, actually, this is not related to what we're talking about, but I think this is an interesting insight. There's a tendency um, when you're trying to build something that's like going to satisfy that really big vision to never launch because you're like, it needs to have all these features that I imagine. Yeah. And I think like, there are, this, this is the reason why many startups don't launch. And I think this is the reason why trade-offs feel uncomfortable, but maybe we should be embracing them because there's, there's ego there too, right? Right. It's like, Oh yeah. Like maybe like I sold this big idea. I sold this big idea. And you feel this pressure from your investors or like maybe it's like, T- traditional definition of ego which is like oh i'm really big online like i have a reputation what will my followers will my, think? my, my followers <laughs> personal <laughs> brand yeah so but like I, I think there was a quora post i i really appreciated. i read like five years ago it was like like how do i get over my fear of failure and like the top answer was like no one cares <laughs> <laughs> yeah um but i think when the alternative is to never launch because you feel like you need to build this perfect thing um maybe we should be embracing those trade-offs that we have to make because bringing it all the way back like like when you launch it's, there's this clarity that you get and like would you rather spend a year and a half building something that you think people want or maybe being uncomfortable and like launching something that's like kind of crappy but like immediately seeing what people want yeah mm-hmm. um so obviously much tougher in practice but I try to remind myself and our team that, like, that's sort of the attitude we need to take. Um, Like, we could spend all day, we could spend weeks building the most incredible composer, or, like, the most incredible onboarding, but what if we have to scrap it? Yeah. Like, I think, like, technical debt is something that, like, everybody talks about and everybody faces, as we're on the topic of trade-offs. One of the things that I've been, like, surprised by the like, how much it affects us is how Technical debt creates design debt, and what I mean by that is, if we spent a long time building this perfect onboarding, and nobody really liked it, users don't find you just find it confusing. But we spent so many weeks building the perfect onboarding, like technically, technically, yeah, like sunk cost fallacy. You like you're much less likely to admit that your design sucks, yeah, and like go back to the drawing board because. For me as a designer, it's there, there's an ego involved there. And I try to think that I would make the right decision there and not have ego. But also like to the engineers who work with you, you have to tell them, like, hey, uh, those three weeks that you spent, they're useless.
1: Yeah. Or maybe we'll use some <laughs> of
2: it. We'll use some of it.
1: Sorry, we wasted all we wasted your time. All your time, yeah. Um, you, sh- you didn't need to stay up that late. Um, it sounds so obvious, I almost feel silly saying it, but I had an enlightening experience. When I was getting into startups and tech, I heard the term technical debt mm-hmm. and I just assumed bad, 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 yeah. like avoid at all costs. But then there was this moment of clarity when I realized that it's technical debt mm-hmm. and debt is a tool, it's right. a financial instrument, right? Mm-hmm. And it's quite normal to take on debt mm-hmm. because it has a lower cost than other forms of, of financing in some cases, right? And so learning that technical debt can be used effectively right. Was an eye-opening experience. Same with on the design side. It's like, a convertible debt. Yeah, like <laughs> oh, acknowledging when you are taking that debt. Yeah. and the and what it's going to cost you in the future in terms of repaying it. Right. Yep. Like thinking of it purely financially was eye-opening for me, and it made me a lot more willing to actually take on technical debt hmm. as long as we digested what that would cost. That's you. why your code sucks so much lately. <laughs> yeah. So it's like when we build the onboarding, it's like yeah, I could build it perfectly or. <laughs> I can accrue some degree of technical debt, yeah, and, and speed it up, and we'll speed it up this much. And if we have to pay it off, you know, <laughs> yeah. Again, I th- maybe this goes back to the personal more money later. thing, like no, the, wanting to think really short term. But uh, I, I can see, you know, then the danger is debt piles up, and you can never pay it back. Right, it becomes too expensive. Right. I think.
2: I think technical debt. If you want to, like, to continue using that like financial debt analogy. Is really interesting in the early stage because there's a chance that, for example, onboarding, we could spend like we could cut corners around how we're uh, like doing our style components. And like that could be a calculated risk because we're just going to throw it all away. Mm -hmm. Um, So, in that sense, like we incur technical debt, we actually never pay it back. I think that's like you just
0: throw out the debt,
2: (laughs) right? Like we write it off. We yeah, we just write it off. And so I think that's possible in the early stage startups. Yep. And I think is sort of the mentality that um, you have to take. But um, there are some aspects of the experience that are really important, and the things that like you're trying to test and validate, like what's the differentiator for about our product. And we spend a lot of time making sure that that's amazing. But at the end of the day, we're not building like an art project. I forget who said that, but. Uh said that to me once before, but it reminds me of a conversation I was having with somebody else in our office, Josh Puckett. Mm-hmm. And we were talking about back to the point about like junior designer versus like senior designer, like the sort of career ladder question is you come to realize that like how things visually look are actually not that important and you you shouldn't get attached to how things look or how things have been. Like there's a there there are the designers out there, there's a spectrum, there are designers out there who like really love like sort of a design as an art form. And then on the other spectrum, you have like these ruthless designers who are like, just don't care about, like don't have an emotional attachment of to what they've built. All they care about is design as a tool for them to learn. Mm-hmm. And I think having, I'm not saying that everybody should be that type of designer, but the brutalist, the brutalist. <laughs> um, but um, I feel like if if you're interested in going from a junior designer to a senior designer and then maybe a founder at some point, that's such a important skill to have is to not have emotional attachment to what you've built, and just to be so wholly customer focused. Um, it's it's like it's, design is just this tool that you're using to like say, say like, hey, what about this? Like, yeah. do you like this? And if they say no, tweak this, then you'll change it. Hey, what about this? Yeah. It's like you're very subservient to your customers. That's all that matters when you start a new new product or a new company.
1: You also have a VC background. I do. How has that changed the way you think about what you're building today? Like, for example, something that comes to mind for me is does knowing what you know about VC and how to talk to venture capitalists and how to raise money affect the way that you've built the product? Yeah, so I think there are two aspects of this. One is like, how do you talk about the company?
2: And um, there is so much lingo and buzzwords in the VC space that it's like overwhelming. Yep. I can imagine to like somebody who's like just diving in deep and there's such (laughs) like information asymmetry between first time founders and VCs that like there is both like explicitly as well as implicitly bad behavior in this space that I won't go into but I think knowing how to talk about what you're building is super important Um, and knowing what the latest buzzwords are is super important but I think to take it to the next level having been a VC and hated those buzzwords, and now being a founder is like, how do I balance that, like, be able to speak that language a little bit, and then be able to parse out what it is about those buzzwords that gets VCs so excited. So when you actually pitch your business, using those sort of like root principles for like, why automation is so excited, or like, why VR is exciting or cryptocurrency is exciting to people, like, I think that's when you get, like, next level. And not only that, it's, like, important for, at least for me, it was important for me to not feel like I was just lying to myself, like, to say, oh, we're starting like an AI company, like that. Um, it's, like, these are the reasons why these tools are going to be really effective to serve this problem that we have. Um, and it's important to be able to tell your team, in like normal words, why it's exciting. Mm-hmm. So I think that's one aspect that's been really important. Um, but the other is just like pure financing. Um, one of the conversations that we had was um, how do you think about these, I call them like step functions of financing. Like the unfortunate reality of starting a company is that like for many businesses, you don't make money from day one. And um, you. that's why investors exist because you have this vision and you need to get to that point where you can be self-sustaining and the hope is that you're self-sustaining um which is not the case of many companies these days Mm -hmm. but i digress um but i think being having been a vc has um i just by default think about company milestones in terms of that like typically expected stuff function. So like uh, there's pre-seed now. So like pre-seed slash angel and then there's seed, there's series A, there's series B and then so on. For each of those financing rounds, there are certain expectations that are set or that exist in the market. There are They aren't like, the reasons why they're set that way are like kind of arbitrary, but not really. <laughs> there are a lot of factors that go into it. Say for example, um, pre-seed is about, validating like small product market fit uh or like building the first concept seed is about validating product market fit maybe testing testing some of the customer acquisition channels but not too much understanding how you're going to grow series a is the pitch that say hey like we have a really small group of users who really love this product super engaged here are the metrics now we just need capital to scale The only limitation to our company right now is capital to scale, so it becomes more of a calculated play for the VC. And then Series B is like like hyper growth and like expanding to other market verticals. And so like if you accept that that is the basic trajectory, or those are the step functions required for each stage of financing in order to keep your company going to be self sustainable, then that actually affects your product roadmap as well. Like while your product roadmap should always be customer focused, it's Unfortunately, important to also think about how, like, maybe you shouldn't focus on customer acquisition first.
0: If I don't think I will get to self-sustaining by X date, when right. I know I will run out of money or get close to running out of money, I have to take on more funding, and I need to right. know what's going to sell to that customer exactly. as well.
2: Exactly. Exactly. So your VCs are in effect your customers as well, mm-hmm. and so how do you sell it in a way that's a compelling story? And so with that framework, then it becomes relatively easy for, I don't want to say every single business, but for many businesses at, for example, the seed stage to say, okay, like we don't, like we're sort of testing monetization, but we haven't put a lot of effort into it. Or maybe we haven't tested monetization at all. Um, Or like we haven't tested, we haven't put a lot of money into customer acquisition because we've been wholly focused on product market fit. There's actually like an incredible power to saying upfront that this is what we're going to do and then actually go do it mm-hmm. and then vcs and investors are like oh wow okay that's what they said they would do um and and so like you're really really focused back to the point that you you have really limited resources as a startup so i think financing needs apply pressure as well on your prioritization as a company um so i think like that that's been one of the main benefits that i've felt that i got from having been a vc when i started a company and finally i think it's just like the things you would expect, like a built-in network mm-hmm. of, like, investors that were sort of, like, hopefully a known quantity. Yeah. Um, like, for better or for worse, there like, this is an industry where reputation is based on somewhat flimsy, like, arbitrary things. And so, like, if you're totally unknown and, like, you you're you just graduated for example like it's much harder to convince somebody that you like you'll be responsible with the money you'll know generally the right things to do so i guess i'm getting older now so like there's um the vc the vc experience was was definitely
1: useful that was actually part of the original context of how we got to know each other is Mm -hmm. i reached out and asked you a bunch of questions as we were figuring out our fundraising path yep and i think the most useful takeaway i had Uh, among many things that we talked about was like figuring out the story you want to tell uh, Mm and depending on the kind of money you're trying to raise like you tell a different story to people if you're trying to raise a seed round versus a pre-seed and kind of what you're saying like how do you articulate what you've decided to focus on and what problems you want to solve instead of saying like we're going to solve everything and we're pre-seed right right right. yes
2: and it's really tough like the in, 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 in such in such an early stage it's like you kind of have to read the room and like do your research on like what type of investor you're talking to. And, that's the like, other thing. It's, yeah, it's like it's like who you're talking to, what they care about, right? Yeah. And like like you you maybe don't know anything at all when you show first show up in the meeting. It's like it's like an incredibly difficult type of sales. Like you sort of pick up on like things that like body language that they're like oh they're like maybe that's interesting to them. You sort of like probe around yep. a little bit and you're like oh that's like super you'll interesting. hit on a vein and they'll get excited. And you'll be yeah. like okay. That's the thing. Um, Don't forget what they just said. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Then it gets really tough, though, like if you want to be really um, true to yourself. I don't know if you guys have faced this situation, but I felt it a few times in the past, both raising money for Northstar, but also raising money for Red Swan. So we raised a fund for Red Swan, Mm -hmm. which is a completely different animal. But we met with investors who we had a good meeting with. Like we were having a conversation and noticed that they really liked this certain part of our business. And it's something that we want to do. So this is North Star. This is something we want to do like long in the future. And that's like everybody's Mm -hmm. end goal. But we felt like that this end goal was their first priority. And they were pushing us to do this first. And so we felt like that was actually the wrong thing to do. And if we took money from them, they would not be aligned with us. And so we're grateful that we were in a position of luxury that we could say no to them and say like hey actually like we really like we think we share the same vision but in terms of like the execution of it we feel like it would be like a non-starter. Obviously you want people who disagree with you as investors as well and like to push you, but the best investors are those who disagree with you and then say okay, it's your company. We believe in you. There's some trust yeah aspect to it. So they'll spar with you as if they're going to block it, but they're not um and so uh fundraising is such a such a tough thing i mm-hmm. mean
0: that's that's kind of a microcosm of how co-founders generally work or a macrocosm i guess um where you're like you'll go head to head on a thing because you firmly believe it's a thing but then at the end of the day you like you have to trust each other yeah. and like agree on a thing so
2: yeah i'm really i'm really glad you brought that up because matt and i have uh, screaming st- matches in the st- office, yeah, yeah and, like all the time. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. You stomp off in disgust sometimes I have to go to the bathroom and close the door. We hear you crying in there, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. I thought the sonos would cover it up <laughs> um so, from the very beginning when we first started to even like loosely talk about working together like i i I appreciate how Matt would have these ways of like conducting himself, and over time, we became explicit about talking about what those things were. And we actually have a document that's like, not very well written, but it exists, where it's like, these are our values. And one of them is, one of them is, we're all on the same team. And so no matter how heated an argument gets, we'll always return to the fact that we're on the same team, and to never make it personal. And the second thing is that you always assume the best intent in somebody. So in a heated argument, you somebody might say something that's like oh, maybe it's like a personal attack. Maybe maybe it's actually intended as a personal attack. Maybe it's not, and it was construed in a certain way that it was felt like a personal attack. But you kind of have to assume that that was just the heat of the moment, and the reason you're working together is because you're all on the same team. And so I, I think I think that's like such an incredible factor for like who you decide to work with, um, and from past experiences, it makes a huge difference. I have worked with people who you don't, who haven't
1: felt those certain same values with. Yeah. We're well over time, uh, but as parting advice, we always like to ask, what keeps you up at night? What keeps me up at night? Honestly, nothing related to work. It's
2: this, the whole world is huh. messed up. I thought like going to say the Destiny 2 release. No.
1: <laughs> but <laughs> no. you got one way no. deeper, way deeper. No, the, it, Shit's it, falling apart. <laughs>
2: shit is falling apart. And I feel like there's there's nothing I can do about it. Maybe there is, but I feel helpless. Um, the um, It feels very divisive where, um, to my earlier point, when people argue, it feels like it's us versus them whereas it shouldn't be. Um, I forget who wrote a post. I think it was um, I think it was Buster Benson who wrote this, this Medium post about how um, political and socioeconomic debate these days feels like sports. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where it's like... Arena sports. Arena sports, where it's like us team versus yours doesn't matter. That's it. There's no way of like, eh, I kind of like that player on that other team. He's really good. Yeah. He's really talented. No, you're going to get booed. Yeah. Um, and so i feel like there's it's like the further like bifurcation of
0: these two worlds i mean it's it's us versus a problem right but we have different solutions and so it right ends up pitting solution versus solution right. right
2: so i hesitate to say that the thing that keeps me up at night is like the other side now they're like it because i mean there are people who completely disagree with me but i feel like that's framing the problem in the wrong way it's like the problem that keeps me up at night is that there's not enough actual dialogue because people are so heated and loaded with these like preconceived notions of what people believe and what their intent is, um, and so, and this is all outside of the things that I work on on a day to day basis. Like I believe that there is an important aspect of improving access to financial advice and financial best practices that previously was only available for wealthy people. That, like, that was an important aspect of why I started this company. Um, but I feel like everything that's happening in the world is like one step higher. Than, it's just sort of mm-hmm. like if if shit hits the fan, like what I'm working on will not matter anymore. Mm-hmm. So that's what keeps me up at night. Um, shit hitting the fan, and nobody's really having real conversations about it. Cool. I'm with you.
1: Thanks for taking and on the, the, the time. High note, cool, I, I, yeah, Jesus, Christ. said cool. <laughs> like, that's not what I meant. Uh, well, thanks for taking the time. Thanks to for coming out. Appreciate it.
0: That was episode two hundred and thirteen. Thanks to Will for coming and hanging out with us. Thank you to you for listening.
1: We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, let us know what you think. We're on Twitter at Design Details FM, or come hang out in our new community.
0: Yeah, we'll post this episode up there right away. Uh, they go up. On the day they're released, we have conversations. Uh, I think last last week we talked about what the best Pokemon was and that turned into a whole conversation on
1: there this week. So if you want to talk about Pokemon among other things like design development, I mean, there's more podcasts. important things, <laughs> but I mean that's, are there really more important things? Probably not, but that's all happening at spectrum.chat slash specfm. It's a new thing that we're working on, and we hope you'll come check it out and say hello.
0: Yep, thanks to everyone who's joined already got a couple thousand people going in there. We've got critiques happening. We have show and tell. We have people just posting things they're working on or asking questions, posting job listings, all sorts of stuff. So go check it out. Can't thank the people in there already enough. We'll see you next week.